Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for you and for the forgiveness of your sins. God fills us with his love, and it overflows in an abundant way as the people of God that he has called us to be. From Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska, this is Proclaiming the One with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, and uh, for the first time, all by his lonesome, not even being a shadow, Vicar Timothy Steele II, and for the next 12 months, all you need to remember is Vicar. Uh, we might even actually let him talk a little bit today. Um, we're, we're done with Gold, pa, Vicar Golden. He's long gone. And uh, you've, you've heard his voice uh, up until now because we record these just a few days in advance. But uh, just so you know, he and his family are settling in. They're back in Fort Wayne, getting ready for classes to start up again around uh, Labor Day. And so we... Uh, and I, I think he misses our singing is what I understood from his text message. Yeah, well... Um, I don't even know what to say to that. We just we sing really well here, he said, and he misses that. So yeah, well, kudos I, to us. I think uh, I think the uh, the congregation here at Good Shepherd is a, a wonderful singing congregation, and only getting stronger, only getting stronger. So thanks be to God for that. Um, we are we're stuck in one respect with uh, Vicar Golden until we come up with a new intro. We're gonna we're gonna have to hear that uh, that silly little thing. But it's been fun for the last six eight months or so with that new intro. And uh, how long we'll keep it? Well, um, I'm not technically astute enough to make a new one. So we'll see where we go with that. Uh, again, uh, today we're looking at the readings for the tenth Sunday after Trinity. Each week we come together, we take a look at the upcoming readings for our Sunday worship. We, um, we begin, uh, and we have been beginning all year long with the gospel reading. The gospel is the um, engine that drives the machine. The Old Testament reading is then chosen to fit or complement the gospel reading. The epistle reading then is... Uh, a practical application of the truths that we've gleaned from the first two. And uh, the introit is very, very key as well. That kind of lays a foundation for everything. The last uh, three or four years on Proclaiming the One, we always began with the introits. We're not looking at them at all this year. And so if you're uh, tuned in to, to hear something about the introit, then uh, just check out the archives uh, thecross957.org, and all of those programs are there and available for you. We're uh, going to begin with our gospel reading, Luke 19, 41 to 48. Vicar Steele, take it away. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, 
but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Okay, there you have it. Luke 19, 41 to 48, the appointed gospel reading for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Um, Pastor, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but one of the questions with people who actually read their Bibles is they, they sometimes think that they have found a contradiction in Scripture. Um, I, thought, I thought Jesus cleansed the temple very early in his ministry, and here in Luke 19, we have Jesus cleansing the temple very late, in his ministry. And so is this a mistake? Did it happen twice? Uh, how, how do we reconcile uh, the things that we have laid out for us here in Scripture? Well, um, we would, we would uh, have no problem saying that we don't know exactly for sure how it happened, but that it's recorded for us in John's Gospel towards the beginning of his ministry and recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke towards the end of his ministry. And so it's very likely that it happened twice, and it wouldn't be a surprise to us because uh, uh, like a dog returns to its vomit, so do sinners return to their sin. Um, and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be impossible to say, too, that it happened once and it's recorded in different places uh, for the sake of uh, carrying the theology. We know it happened at least once. It's possible it happened twice. Uh, can we tell you for sure one way or the other? No. Is it a um, is it a problem with the Scripture that says the Scripture is wrong? And I would say no to that as well. Okay. that I think that is as honest and uh, a good of an answer to a complex question as possible. I think sometimes when uh, pastors, uh, teachers, uh, prophets in the church, uh, we've been talking a lot about false prophets lately, folks, uh, when, they, when they make dogmatic statements that it has to be this way with regard to things that are not explicitly stated in Scripture, that always gets us into trouble. And we have a rough idea, for example, when Paul wrote some of his epistles, but for people who come out and say, boy, it had to be in 37 AD, yeah, the, these, uh, these kind of statements, that they're never helpful, and they, they create controversy in areas and take the focus off of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for poor, miserable sinners like you and me. And, and I, I do think there is a problem that we have as Western thinkers in that we think of everything as linear. And uh, actually, you know, for example, St. John's Gospel and even the book of Revelation that he writes later, those are not linear in the their writing. That's more of an Eastern sort of thing where we do have, uh, it doesn't have to be chronological. And so we have that possibility that that's the reality, that John's recording the same event just at a different point for the purpose of the things he's trying to teach in his gospel. Thank you. In uh, Luke chapter 9, I believe it's verse 52, it's at the end of the chapter, um, we read, and it's, it's a major, major uh, point, we read that Jesus set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. And then everything beginning in chapter 10 and moving forward is Jesus working his way to Jerusalem. Pastor, he's here. He, yeah. he draws near the city. What's the big deal? Is, uh, is there some uh, mystical 
uh, connection with the city of Jerusalem? Is there something about the pH balance in the soil that is there? Why this focus on the city of Jerusalem? And I think this is important for us because we have some misguided Christians today that have a misunderstanding about the role of Jerusalem in our theology. Yeah, um, well, it goes all the way back to uh, Genesis. Maybe would be the place to start. Genesis uh, is the place where Abraham takes his son Isaac um, to sacrifice him, and it just so happens that the mountain that uh, uh, Abraham is going to sacrifice uh, Isaac on is Mount Moriah, upon which later on then uh, a threshing floor is built that King David buys when he takes over Jerusalem, and that Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem, uh, and he buys it for the purpose of building a temple, which his son Solomon does. And so it's the place then from David onward where the king uh, who lives in Jerusalem and the religious groups within uh, Jewish society, including the temple, uh, where they come together. And and this is then fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is uh, prophet, priest, and king all together in one. And so the places where these things happen, now Jesus is going to fulfill those things uh, by going there to bleed and die upon the cross. Now, when Jesus does that and he dies and he rises again, uh, God allows the temple to be destroyed, which we'll talk a little bit about, I think, in a minute, uh, so that that's no longer the central place of our faith, but rather anywhere Christ is present in his word and sacrament becomes the central place, uh, because then we still have the same thing. We have the prophet, priest, and king there for us and for our forgiveness. And so, you know, Jerusalem is important in the sense that it's the place that all these events happen in the Old Testament that prefigure Christ, and it's the place where Christ went to fulfill all those things, but it is not necessarily the place where we need to tear down the uh, Dome of the Rock and rebuild the temple to make Christ come back uh, so that the world can come to an end. That's not in our control or our authority. That's in God's control and authority, and we cannot manipulate God or, or change his mind in those fashions. So are you trying to tell me that while the city of Jerusalem is a real city to this day, that the city of Jerusalem is a type or a foreshadowing of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because it took place there, all, uh, foreshadowed all the way back to Genesis 22, and that the new Jerusalem is Jesus? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I, I'd say yes, um, and I'd even say this is where we get into tradition, right? And so there's we're always walking on very thin ground. But even the tradition is is that uh, Jerusalem is a place where Adam was buried. In fact, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's the Chapel of Adam at the foot of Golgotha. Uh, and so, yes, Jerusalem is fulfilled in Jesus. And so it is an important place, historically speaking, and it's fine for us to go there and see the sites and see that, but it's not, it's not, the, it's not worth fighting over and bleeding over and blowing each other up over because it is just a historical place. It is not um, the place that we need to control to bring about the end of the world. You beat me to the punch. So are you telling me that all of the history of the Crusades to reclaim the territory, the city of Jerusalem, because somehow that's the kingdom of God, that all of these folks uh, were misguided and they just didn't have their theology right? 
in the sense that um, we are creating a kingdom of God. Now, is there, we could get into the, the finer historical points, right? Are there Christians that had been conquered by Islam a uh, 100 years, 200 years before that it's worth going to defend them or protect them? Yes, but is it worth going there to conquer Jerusalem and create the kingdom of God on earth? That's misguided. Okay, and so one last point on this, Pastor. Uh, you turn on TV, especially late at night when you have insomnia, and you see these religious programs where they want you to send your money to them to uh, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, reinstitute animal sacrifices, because if we do all these things, then Jesus will come and there will be a mass conversion of the Jews. Um yeah, that's that's uh, that's not true at all. And in fact, uh, no one knows the day or the hour. It's not in our control. It's in God's control. The Son of God will return when God the Father says the time is right. Um, so save your money. Use it for a charitable purpose that is worthwhile, like proclaiming the gospel, uh, sending pastors out to deliver the sacraments, things like that. Rebuilding the temple is not good. And and it in fact. It holds the potential to cause a, a, a huge conflict in which many millions will die apart from the faith in Christ. Um, and I don't know if you know this, in, in Jerusalem there is a temple institute that already uh, has built the altar and has practiced sacrificing animals and they have built the high priest's garments and they have plans uh, for a new temple building. It, it's bad news, uh, and it, it's not worth supporting. And it takes away from the reason why Jesus is going to Jerusalem, his death and resurrection. We need to take a short break. Tenth Sunday after Trinity, proclaiming the one. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, how great is your compassion. I can't think of a better hymn to be our bumper music for this 10th Sunday after Trinity, proclaiming the one. We're looking at the gospel reading, 19, Luke 19, 41 to 48. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus throws out the money changers, and the people are hanging on his words. We spent a lot of time in the uh, first segment talking about the uh, the significance of the city of Jerusalem. And I want to I want to move on here. We'll get we'll get into a little bit more of that later on with some uh, historical background. But Jesus drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it. When uh, when Lazarus is dead, John chapter 11. Shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Pastor, what does the fact that Jesus wept teach us about his person and his work? Well, um, 
teaches us that in one first regard that he is truly man uh, and able to do the things that men are able to do and feel the emotions that men are able to feel. Um, and it, it also um, reveals to us God's great compassion on us and how he does not desire uh, this sinful world to be the way that it is or us to face the challenges that we face, and yet our sin has brought it about, uh, and he's willing to then to do, of course, the things necessary to fix that for us on the cross. But that reveals those things about Jesus to begin with. Okay, so Jesus is a man of compassion. We have uh, we have had a lot of fun with the word sprunknitzomai uh, in the past where Jesus is pouring out his guts uh, and uh, he comes, he weeps over Jerusalem, and then he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. What are the things that make for peace that the people should know about, but they don't? Well, um, there's a lot of things that I think Jesus is implying here. First off, Jesus knows all things. He is God. He is um, omnipresent, uh, omnipotent, and uh, omniscient. And so he knows all things and sees all things, is all places, etc. And so when he says, oh, that you'd known the things that bring peace, he means several things. First off, he's looking forward into the future at what will happen to Jerusalem and how the Jews will bring upon themselves their destruction at the hands of Emperor Titus. Uh, He also uh, is looking back at history and how they did the same thing in the Old Testament times under the kings of Israel and Judah. He also then is looking throughout all time at the the reality that there's sin and that uh, we continue to sin and we don't actually listen to God's word, which would bring us peace. And then he's also looking at their lack of faith and trust in him uh, and the things that he will do to bring about peace by dying on the cross and rising from the dead and their uh, inability to grasp those things. And so there's lots of different things that Jesus means when he's saying these words. They are hidden from them. Is uh, God uh, being mean or uh, bad that he's teaching them a lesson? Have they closed their eyes and they've... They're hidden because they refuse to see. What? Uh, what is? Un- unpack that phrase for us, Pastor. Yeah, um, it's kind of the words uh, imply the idea of not being able to see the forest through the trees. Uh, Jesus is telling them all the things that are going to happen that bring peace. He's going to tell them about that he's going to the cross. In fact, you brought that verse up from Luke chapter nine as well. That the same thing. He set his eyes towards Jerusalem. Jesus is telling them these things, and yet they just don't get it. They don't understand. They don't believe. They don't have faith yet. Uh, and and so when Jesus says there's going to be peace, but you just don't get it, he's speaking the truth about their sinful nature and their inability to come to Christ themselves. And we have in many places in Scripture the, the whole idea of Jesus teaching in parables, which he does a lot, because the parables are hidden to those who don't believe in God, and they unpack and unfold the marvelous mysteries of the kingdom of God for those who do believe uh, that God is sending a Messiah, and indeed that Jesus is that Messiah. I want to skip that um, that next part, and uh, to keep up with our theme, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Pastor, um, it seems kind of a cryptic thing, the time of your visitation. What's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about the fact that he is 
the very Son of God in human flesh, uh, who is un- uncreated and yet begotten from the Father before all eternity, and he's right there amongst them, and they don't get it or believe it or understand it. And so, the, you know, we talk about the visitation and other times uh, in, in the sense that God became man, he was incarnate uh, and lived among us, uh, and they don't believe that that's Jesus. They don't understand it, and they're rejecting that truth. The visitation of God to his people, I think, is uh, very, very underappreciated. We have the uh, Theophanies in the Old Testament, where the second person of the Trinity uh, gives the appearance of a, an angel or a human being and, and shows up. We have the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus, and we have the way that God continues to visit us today as his word is proclaimed in its truth and purity, and as the gifts of God are received as God has commanded and promised. And so I think this is a a major theme because people today are so preoccupied, they don't realize that today is the day of God's visitation. We're so caught up with politics or pandemic or will we have Husker football and all these kind of things that seem so really important that we miss out on the visitation of God. Pastor, uh, I know you're chomping at the bit. Uh, Verse 43 and following. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Uh, Pastor, uh, you mentioned before some some guy named Titus. Um, Is Jesus talking in metaphor here, or did these words of Jesus actually come true historically? They actually came true historically, in fact, uh, just a few decades after Christ's ascension into heaven, <clears throat> and uh, began in 66 AD when uh, one of the Roman governors, uh, I think a guy named Florus, wanted to collect taxes from the Jerusalem temple, and they sent soldiers into the temple to get those, and people started taking up a collection as if the soldiers were poor. They actually uh, started rioting. They arrested the soldiers, and they crucified a whole bunch of them around Jerusalem. Uh, And then they drove out the uh, next army that came that tried to uh, uh, settle things down. And so essentially they're in open rebellion. Uh, This doesn't go well with the the Romans and their their rule of the whole world basically at that time. So uh, Emperor Nero, shortly before his own suicide, sends an army led by Vespasian to put down this rebellion because they need the money and the income from this wealthy part of the world. Vespasian is on his way down there. He wins a few battles, and then uh, Nero kills himself because he's a crazy person. And Vespasian's army declares him to be the emperor. So he goes back to Rome uh, to assume the emperorship after a few other historical things we'll skip over. But he also needs then a quick victory in Israel to kind of solidify his authority and power. And so his son Titus comes and uh, continues to persecute the war against the, uh, the Jews. Uh, they eventually come to um, Jerusalem in uh, April of 70 AD. 
And they do exactly what Jesus says here. They built a wall of circumvallation around Jerusalem to keep people in. Uh, in fact, then not long after they finished that wall, a bunch of uh, Jewish people from Babylon and Egypt and other places come to celebrate the Passover, and Titus lets them in but doesn't let them back out, which... Uh, accelerates the starvation of the people in Jerusalem. Uh, eventually, the army enters uh, the city through the wall, uh, tears down all the buildings, just as Jesus said, burns the temple to the ground. Uh, the gold and other things that are uh, rescued from the flames are led into Rome and actually uh, spend hundreds of years in a different temple in Rome uh, until they're lost at the collapse and sack of the Roman Empire in 425. Uh, the estimates that uh, Josephus gives are that a million Jews died in Jerusalem uh, and that uh, 30,000 or more are taken as slaves. And uh, so it's a very bloody affair, a very dirty affair, a very terrible affair. And Christ sees this 30, 40 years ahead of time and weeps over the carnage that he knows is coming and, in fact, warns the Christians to watch out for it. In fact, part of the reason Christianity survives is because they listened to the words of Jesus, believe it or not, <laughs> and when they saw these things coming, they hightailed it away from Jerusalem before it was destroyed. And as horrific as uh, this is, thank you for that historical background, as horrific as this is, uh, if there still was a temple standing, people would be tempted to think that animal sacrifice and temple worship was the way to go. This is a part of God's uh, ultimate plan so that people have their focus and their fixture on a different sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this sacrifice is for all people, for all time, for all sin. And God continues to visit us, not only in Jerusalem, but wherever his word is proclaimed, and the gifts of God are, are administered. Now, Pastor, uh, we got just a couple of minutes left. Um, when I read these words, uh, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground. I can't help but think about the persecution of Christians that's going on around the world. I can't help but think about how churches are being attacked, how Bibles are being burned, how Christians today, uh, in a lesser extent, but Christians today feel this same wall around them and the persecution squeezing in on them. Can Christians today look at these words and apply that to their current situation, or is that an illegitimate use of the Word of God? I, th I think they can, especially because of things Christ says in other places that um, tells them that this persecution will come and that the world will hate them because it first hated Christ himself. Uh, and, and the reality is, is that just as these people were killed in Jerusalem, so too Christians are being killed in our world today. Uh, look especially right now at Nigeria, where uh, thousands of Christians have been killed this year, and it's hardly reported on in the news at all. Uh, I think, too, uh, the important thing, like we've, we've said here, is that uh, we understand that Christian worship isn't based upon a building in Jerusalem, but rather upon the Son of God. And so we see this destruction of the temple in Jerusalem foretold by Christ, and yet we also hear Christ's own words that say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, speaking not of the temple in Jerusalem as if that's the place where God dwelt, but rather speaking about his own body, knowing that's the place where God dwells. God dwells with us in Jesus Christ, and that temple was destroyed, but it was rebuilt and 
will never be destroyed again. And wherever the word of God is present in its truth and purity, that's where we also are present in faith. And so when we're persecuted, we do have Christ with us, and we are safe in that mighty fortress of his protection. I wish we had more time to go to Revelation 21. I saw a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. There are so many connections here. Uh, the key is, folks, hang on the words of Jesus. Hear his word, believe his word, live his word, and God's blessings especially in Christ Jesus, will never end. We need to take a short break, proclaiming the one. When we come back, we're going to look at our Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 8, 4 to 12. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. I will praise your great compassion, Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We're privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're looking at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. In our first two segments, we looked at our gospel reading, Luke 19, 41 to 48. We want to shift our attention now to the Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 8, 4 to 12. Jeremiah 8, 4 to 12. Vicar, take it away. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the just decrees of the Lord. How can you say, We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Wow, we got some uh, pretty, pretty harsh words here from God through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 8, 4 to 12. And uh, we, can, we can see, at least uh, superficially, the uh, connection between the Old Testament reading and our gospel reading from Luke 19, and that is that common theme of peace. 
If you had known, Jesus says, what would bring you peace, um, you would act differently. And here we have the prophets who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Pastor, can can you give us a just a little bit of a uh, historical background to you know these early chapters of Jeremiah? What's the what's the situation in the world? What's the situation for the children of Israel? And what's the situation that Jeremiah is called into to speak the word of God? Yeah. Um Historically speaking, it's very similar to what we were talking about in the time of Christ. And so Jeremiah is writing in the uh, early 6th century uh, B.C. And so 590, uh, you know, 586 is the end of his uh, writing. So just before that time, um, before Christ. And at this time, uh, the kingdom of Israel has ceased to exist. Um, it was taken away by the Assyrians beforehand. At the same time that the kingdom of Israel is taken away, the kingdom of Judah uh, becomes kind of a client state to the Assyrian Empire. Assyria eventually collapses and is taken over by the Babylonian, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And the uh, Jewish people in Judah become a client state to them as well. Um, They are kind of stuck between two different kingdoms then, the Neo-Babylonian Empire to the north and to the east, and then to the south and to the west, there is the Egyptian Empire. And the two of them are warring back and forth over this place, and Judah's right in the battleground, essentially. And being a client state of Babylon, uh, not long after Jeremiah writes these words, Judah is going to change its mind and try to become uh, a client state of Egypt. And that will lead to a war, which Egypt loses and Babylon wins. And as a result, Jerusalem will be uh, torn to the ground and burned down. In fact, Tradition holds that uh, the same day of the year, the Tish Ba'av, uh, that uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, is also the same day that it will be destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, just um, 600 years difference in their date, uh, but the same day of the year as well. Uh, sometime in late July, early August, right, as we're uh, going to have these readings as our scripture lessons. Uh, and so th- the situation is very similar, except uh, Jeremiah is is now the prophet who's warning the people of Israel, but also driving them to look forward to the hope that's to come in Jesus Christ uh, 586 years after their uh, destruction here. So um, are, are you telling me that Jeremiah is telling the people of God to repent and look out because destruction is coming, and 600 years later, Jesus is in Jerusalem with the rebuilt temple, and he's telling them, repent because destruction is coming. Uh, Is this just like some kind of an odd coincidence, or what do you make out of Jeremiah being a prefiguration or a type of Christ with the message that he brings? He he absolutely is a uh, type of Christ. Um, Not to say that he's 
the son of God or anything like that. He's just a regular person. But in a sense, he is a type of Christ that he is arrested, he's beaten, he's thrown into a pit, he's mistreated, uh, all because he's preaching God's word just as Christ will be. And it all happens shortly before Jerusalem is destroyed. Um, And I think that that, uh, really is an important thing for us to wrap our brain around um, the similarities of what happened then. And then also to listen to the promises of Christ in regards to the end, where there will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, disease, pestilence, all that stuff. Uh, And all these are the birth pangs that say the end is coming soon, and we ought to be ready for that as Christians. And the way we're ready for that is to trust in Christ, uh, just as the word of Jeremiah pointed us to, and just as the word of Jesus himself points us to. Thank you. Thank you for that. And to me, that is just so so fascinating when, when those when those dots are connected, when those light bulbs come on, it just, uh, the unity of scripture and the power of the word of God, it's just, uh, I don't know, it's an awesome, awesome feeling. Um, pastor, they hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Return how? Return to what? Um, I think sometimes we see little things like this and it just it just escapes us is this is this returning to a physical place or is this a spiritual returning it is a spiritual returning um i'd even i'd i'd be so bold as to say they're not listening uh, to God's word they have not spoken rightly uh, they have not returned in the sense that they have not repented they haven't uh, um, you know listened to the word and had faith in how God is going to save and so in that regard that's really us a lot of the time <laughs> we're not that different and that's what we I think need to bring out of these scripture lessons we're really not that different than the Jews in Jerusalem in 70 AD we're not that different from the Jews in Jerusalem in 586 BC we're not that different from any of the people who refuse to listen to God's word and repent and we need to be aware of that and to actually listen and repent as God's word requires of us we have some animal word pictures here uh, the people of God are compared to the stork, the turtle dove, the swallow, and the crane, and uh, they are not compared in a favorable way. What is what is Jeremiah teaching here, and and why is this so ironically funny? Well, uh, these particular birds are all birds that migrate, and uh, they know the time to fly south for the winter, or I, I guess I don't know for sure if they fly south or whatever in uh, that particular area or if anyways they they migrate here we do yeah they do and they know the right time to do that and um Jeremiah, or I guess God through Jeremiah is saying, these birds know when the right time is, but you don't. You're not smart enough to figure it out. And what he's saying is, your destruction is coming near, and you can't even notice it. You don't realize that you're walking off a cliff, or the blind leading the blind, or however you want to say it. Okay. In uh, verse 9, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? People oftentimes think they are wise, they are smart, whether it be politically smart, scientifically smart, economically smart, or whatever, and yet they're not even as smart as a, as a stork or a turtle dove. And it all boils down to 
what do you do with the word of God? Pastor, in the time that we have in this segment, how is the ministry of Jeremiah, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the church today, how can it be summed up with regard to that phrase, the word of God, the word of the Lord? How does that all fit together? Well, the question is, how do you come to be wise? How do you know what's true or not true? How do you know what reality is? And maybe we can feel that right now, right? <laughs> Which doctor on TV is the right one? Uh, nobody knows, right? But what do we know? We know that uh, God's word is true, and that actually tells us the real reality of what we're facing, the reality that all of us are going to die one day, one way or another, and that in faith in Christ, all of us will also be raised from the dead, and death will not be our end. The only way we can know that and believe it is by hearing God's word. As, as Paul writes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God. And so that's the reality that we need to absorb and be uh, having our being within because the Word of God is the thing that saves, and it's the only thing that saves, and everything else uh, is futile. Uh, very, very well said. And a true prophet today, as we've heard over the last few weeks, a true prophet today does not preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. He does not preach the uh, headlines of the day in a salvific way. A true prophet today points you to the word of God, to law and gospel, to peace, the only peace that can bring true and lasting peace, and that is through the Prince of Peace, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who brings us peace by his perfect life, by his bloody and obedient death, and his glorious resurrection three days later. Uh, my friends, this is your peace. This is your forgiveness. This is your life. Hear the word of God. Don't be too proud to blush, to admit your sin, to repent, because God's desire for you is the peace that surpasses all understanding. The forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to take a short break, proclaiming the one. When we come back, we're going to look at our epistle reading for the 10th Sunday after Trinity, Romans 9.30 through 10 verse 4. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNA. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, how great is your compassion! Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship. We gather each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with uh, family Bible study, Sunday school for all ages in between. We uh, also worship year-round, Wednesday evening, 630. We'd love to have you with us. Tune in on the radio if you can't join us in person. Listen uh, on our 
radio or church website, thecross957.org, goodshepherdlincoln.org. Check out the archives there as well, and um, we'd love to have your feedback. Today we're looking at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. In our first two segments, we looked at our gospel reading, Luke 19, 41 to 48. In our third segment, we looked at the Old Testament reading, the traditional Old Testament reading for Trinity 10, Jeremiah 8, 4 to 12, and we left a lot of meat on that bone. Uh, but we need to move on. We're going to look at our epistle reading now, Romans 9, 30 through 10, verse 4. Vicar? What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All right, thank you, Vicar. Uh, the epistle reading for the 10th Sunday after Trinity, Romans 9:30 through 10:4. Again, there are options for the Old Testament and the epistle. These are the traditional standard readings that we're looking at this year. Um, Pastor, it appears that we have a very basic uh, teaching that Paul has been working through all the way through his letter to the Romans. Now he's Uh, applying that specifically uh, in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to the Jewish nation. How are people saved? Are they saved by obedience to the law, or are they saved by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Can can we um, distill this text down into that simple observation, or is that doing disservice to our text? No, I think you can. Paul is telling, I mean, he's writing this letter to the Romans who are Gentiles, who have been pagans before and now have converted to Christianity. And the question is, well, we're saved, but these Jewish people who have been uh, fighting their entire lives to go to the temple to worship, to keep themselves ritually clean, to not eat bacon uh, or shellfish, uh, to uh, not walk on the Sabbath day, to uh, do all these things, those people aren't saved. And the answer is, that's correct. We're saved not because of the things that we do, but rather because of our faith in Jesus Christ, which has been gifted to us. And this is the same uh, idea then that we teach in our small catechism. Um, The Holy Spirit uh, calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the entire Christian church on earth. But I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. And so this is the same thing Paul's teaching. Don't think you're going to be saved because you are doing the law or fulfilling it. Rather, know that you're saved because of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. When, uh, when we have here um, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, 
what is this righteousness? And then, and then we have it several times uh, in our in our text toward the end of our text in uh, Romans ten three, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Uh, can you give us a, 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 a simple definition for that term righteousness and how that term is uh, being used and unpack that for us here in this particular text? Yeah, maybe an easy way to say it, it would be to be legally declared holy or to be legally declared unsinful or to be legally declared uh, upright and just. And, and so that's the reality that we have. We have been declared holy, righteous, and just because Jesus has lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again and administered and delivered that reality to us through the waters of baptism, through the hearing of the word, and through the reception of the Lord's Supper. We are declared righteous because of those things. On the other hand, people who strive and strive and work and work and work to try and do what the law says, but don't look to Jesus having fulfilled that, don't have that same righteousness because they're not looking to God to save them, but rather to themselves. They have stumbled. Thank you for that, Pastor. Well done. Uh, they have stumbled over the stumbling block. Uh, what's that all? What's that all about? Yeah, Jesus himself is that stumbling block, um, and he says this about himself in the Gospels as well. And the reality is, then, if you are um, wandering around looking at yourself and the righteous things that you think you've done and how good you have been at fulfilling the law, then you miss Jesus. You might even trip over Jesus and fall on your face. But unless you realize that Christ fulfills the law in your place for you, then you cannot be saved. There are many times in Scripture, uh, and, and Jesus, uh, through the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, will exhort Christians to be zealous to be zealous, I believe it's Romans 12, 4, to be zealous for the truth, to be zealous for the faith. And yet here, uh, just a couple of chapters earlier, um, we, we have kind of a warning with regard to our zeal. It says in uh, verse 2 of Romans 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to to knowledge. Pastor, it's not enough simply to be zealous, to, to be loud and boisterous. Uh, we, we see a lot of people being zealous today, right, with a microphone or a megaphone on the street and whatever they're passionate about, whether it's racial justice or uh, police uh, action, more police, less police, whether it's open the schools, close the schools or whatever, we see a lot of zeal and we see a lot of zeal in the church too. What is Paul, I mean, the Holy Spirit through Paul, what is Paul saying with regard to they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge? Well, um, 
It's the same thing Jesus says. Uh, many, many will say, Lord, Lord, but uh, on the last day I'll say, I do not know you. Just because you are talking about God and think that you're explaining God correctly, if you stumble on Jesus, if you don't realize that he alone is the one who's fulfilled the law and that you are saved only by his life, death, and resurrection, you can talk about God until you're red in the face. It doesn't mean one hill of beans a difference. Faith saves. Faith is delivered by the Word, and the Word points us to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, life, and salvation. Any other way that you try to come to God or understand God is wrong. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, the verse 4 of Romans 10, one of the most misused and abused verses in all Scripture. So, Jesus died and rose for me, so he fulfilled the law, so... I can go out and do whatever I want to. Uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> but it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If that's not the case, then, Pastor, explain that verse to me. Well, it's not that the law has come to an end. Christ himself says that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but rather to fulfill it. And so when it says end here, that word doesn't just mean um, end like we oftentimes think of the word uh, end, but rather what it means is the completion, the fulfillment of, um, and it's, it's a slightly different word. It's the telos is the word that's used here. Uh, and that means it's the same thing when Jesus is on the cross. Perhaps this is the best way to understand it. And he says, it is finished. That word is tetelestai, which is the same word as telos here. In other words, it is complete in me, fulfilled in me. And we still then, as Christians in Christ, strive to the very best of our human nature to fulfill the law. And when we fail, we confess our sins. But that doesn't mean that we embrace our sins and let those define us. Rather, Christ, who has fulfilled the law in our place, does. And that's the way we have salvation is because of Jesus. And in response to that, then we try to live as Christians. The law is not bad. The law is not evil. The law is a gift of God. God has implanted that law in our hearts. He calls us to be perfect as he, the Lord, is perfect. And as we literally hang on the words of the Lord, we don't abuse the law by trying to think that it will somehow save us or make us righteous. Christ has fulfilled that righteousness for us. And now in freedom, freedom of the gospel, we can live our lives in faith toward God and love toward our fellow man and truly be at peace, the peace that only God can provide. Vicar, you want to bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Let us pray. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I am Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One. We looked at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. When, uh, when you wake up Sunday morning, drink your coffee. Read your paper. Pray for your pastors, please. And most of all, just come to church. 
We pray that this program has been a blessing. We will see you again next week. God's richest blessings. True peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you.